This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Ephesians 5, 11. Guys, we've said that scripture a lot lately. It might be a good luck scripture, and we'll get more into that here in just a second. But I just wanted to say thank you to all of you guys that have been donors to us and to what we've been able to do. I've told you from, not from the beginning, but in the last several months, that the only way we're able to expand what we're doing, and we have some huge expansion announcements that we hope to get to before the end of the year. The only reason we're able to do that is because of donors. And even just before I got on this podcast today, we have a new $200 a month donor. Okay, so if you go to our website, undaunted.life backslash donate, that's where you can go to be a one-time donor, drop in and do a one-time thing, or you can come in and be a part of what we're doing on a monthly basis. We have guys that are doing $5 a month, all the way up to $500 a month or even more. Guys, this is how we're able to grow. Because I hate that everything costs money, but things cost money. It takes time. The only way we're able to equip men to push back darkness is with you. So that is the commercial, undaunted.life backslash donate. We appreciate you guys very, very much. Now, I need to tell you something right from the jump here, okay? You're going to 100% want to stick around on this episode until the quick resilience boost. And I know, I know a lot of you guys turn this show off before the very, very end. Usually the quick resilience boost is just kind of a, a summary of all the different things that I've talked about in the show. It's a summary of, of the links that I have, whether it's an interview or a regular podcast, but not with this one. I thought about doing an entire episode on what I'm going to talk about here on the quick resilience boost at the end, but I'm going to save that for you. I just want to put this as like a little Easter egg inside this episode. I don't even know if I use that reference right, but it's at the end here. And I guarantee you, you guys, if you haven't heard of this story already, you're going to want to hear from me. So don't, don't turn this off until you get to the very, very end. Okay. Now moving on to today's subject and speaking of which. I've given you all a lot of content this week. All right. I think this is the third podcast this week. So, hey, I'm here for you. I'm trying to keep you in the know. But this statement that I'm about to make is going to be very satisfying to say out loud. And that's why I'm calling the episode what it is. Score one for the domestic terrorists. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I mean, you haven't been listening to the episodes over the last month or so. Episode 245 of this podcast, I did an episode called When the Government Treats Parents Like Domestic Terrorists. And I went into a lot of detail. Again, go back to episode 245. I went into a ton of detail about what was going on with the National School Boards Association writing a letter to the Biden administration, to the White House, saying that they wanted federal law enforcement to intercede for them in their uh, you know, school board meetings and things like that. You know, And basically asking them to use the Patriot Act, which would treat these parents, these angry parents at school board meetings and angry for really, really good reasons like anti-LGBTQ stuff or anti-trans stuff or anti-critical race theory things that treating those people like domestic terrorists. And that was sent over to the attorney general, Merrick Garland, and he basically went right along with it. He didn't do any of his own research. He got exposed on on Capitol Hill as somebody that literally had no idea what was going on. He was taking the NSBA at their word. So I talked about that on episode 245. Then on episode 247 called School Board Hides Child Rape in Order to Pass a Transgender Student Policy, I focused on what was going on in Loudoun County, the the story that was broken uh, over there by the Daily Wire folks about them hiding the rape 
of a couple of their students and the sexual assaults of a couple of their students in their school board around the same time they were trying to get a transgender policy passed and the parents finding out about this and this, you know, causing everybody to freak out and go crazy. So make sure you go back to listen to episodes 245 and 247 to get a little bit more context. But one thing that I mentioned, and I think I mentioned it on a couple of those episodes and maybe even on one that I haven't listed there. I mentioned how all of this information that was coming to light, all these news stories, all this breaking news, how it would directly affect the gubernatorial race in the state of Virginia between heavy Democratic favorite Terry McAuliffe, who had been the governor before, and a relatively unknown Republican businessman, a newcomer named Greg Youngkin. Okay, I kind of mentioned that as an aside, like, hey, this is something to watch for. But as of just even a couple of months ago, Terry McAuliffe was more than a double digit favorite to become the uh, governor of the state of Virginia again. Now, what happened was, is Tuesday of this week was that election. But in the weeks and in the days and really even the hours leading up to that day, the race was tightening. And like I said, just a couple of months ago, this race was a foregone conclusion that Greg Youngkin would go down in a blazing defeat against Terry McAuliffe. But the polls were tightening as every story came out about critical race theory. And, you know, again, shout out to the Daily Wire. Shout out to Christopher Rufo uh, for the reporting that they did on critical race theory. A lot of the things that were happening were causing these numbers to kind of contract a little bit. Everything that was happening with national politics, everything with Joe Biden, every gaffe, the polls would tighten a little bit. And even in the days, literally the days leading up to the race, there were polls that saw it everywhere from a dead heat to a major victory for Republican Greg Youngkin, right? So, and, and towards the end of the race, Democrats were attempting to do a lot of different things. They were trying to paint the opposition as, as domestic terrorists. They were trying to paint them as racist. Uh, you had the Lincoln Project, which used to be a Republican think tank, I believe, and now they're just like an anti-Trump think tank type of thing. They, they, they did this thing where they tried to pretend like there were these white supremacists that came out to a Greg Youngkin rally, and they had tiki torches and all that, and then they got exposed for that. It's very, very embarrassing for that organization, and rightfully so. But they were trying to paint these people as extremists. They were trying to say critical race theory doesn't even exist. You know, all of you are just freaking out. And, you know, Terry McAuliffe, I guess to his credit, because people give, you know, Bernie Sanders credit for just basically sitting there and uh, saying the same thing since the 70s. Terry McAuliffe didn't back down from his comments, you know, even whenever he's talking about in the election where he's like, look, parents shouldn't be able to tell what these schools uh, should teach. They shouldn't be able to, to tell what the teachers should be teaching in the classrooms. And he kept doubling down on that and doubling down on that. And then they brought out the big guns. They brought out the, one of the most popular presidents in modernity, President Barack Obama. He came out there and said, hey, you know, these are trumped up culture wars. You know, this is ridiculous. Critical race theory isn't a real thing. Don't let, you know, right wing media influence you. Then they brought out the co-presidents, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, basically to say this isn't a big deal. We're going to have a big sweeping victory in Virginia. Don't worry about it. Right. And the media was all too happy to carry water for the Democrats as well to to do the same things. They were painting the opposition as as domestic terrorists, painting them as racist, you know, Greg Youngkin, you know, oh, he, maybe he's QAnon, maybe he's this or all these different things. That was the attempt and that was the pitch. So the pitch by Greg Youngkin, the Republican, was that, hey, I, I want to make sure that we can get this economy thing under control. I want to make sure we do things that, you know, have Virginians in mind first. And also, I want to make sure that parents understand that we're going to take care of their kids if they're in the public school system and not indoctrinate them. But the closing pitch for Terry McAuliffe was, hey, you know what? If you don't vote for us, you're probably a terrorist. You're probably a white supremacist, right? So so that's what all was going down, and that all culminated this past Tuesday, November the 2nd, so just a few days ago. 
And then by now, you've obviously heard the results for, for those of you that literally have been sleeping under a rock. The gubernatorial race, Glenn Youngkin, the Republican, beat the Democrat and former Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe by around two and a half points. An absolute bloodbath compared to where that campaign was just five, six weeks ago. I mean, again, you've heard people say this before. All they had to do was not be crazy. All they had to do was not have a gaffe. But I just got to tell you, what Terry McAuliffe said at the debate with Glenn Youngkin, where he was talking about how parents shouldn't be able to tell schools what to teach their kids, that might go down as his Howard Dean, yeah, moment. Like that, that might literally be his moment that ended his political career. This is a Clintonite. This is a guy that I think used to run the DNC. Like these are, this was a powerful Democratic individual, and he went down by a fairly wide margin here, two and a half points. But then the the poll or the results kept coming in that night, and. The Virginia voters voted in a Republican lieutenant governor and a Republican attorney general. So the lieutenant governor race, a Republican named Winsome Sears, she's a black woman, which that shouldn't matter, but she's a black woman. She beat a Democrat named Hala Ayala by around two points. And then a Republican named Jason Mayares uh, beat a Democrat named Mark Herring for attorney general by about one and a half points. Okay. This is the first time since W. Bush was in office that these seats have been held by Republicans. Okay, and this all happened in a state that Joe Biden carried by 10 points in 2020, by 10 points. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing. But then I just got to tell you, so I wouldn't say that that result was expected, but it looked like all the momentum was on the side of Greg Youngkin as we as we kind of led towards the end of that race. I thought all of that was was kind of in that area and in that vein. But right before I went to bed, you know, I was flipping around. I think I may have been watching baseball or some fights or something like that. I flip it over to the news and I just wanted to kind of see what what they were saying and what was going on. And they were talking about New Jersey. And just to be frank with you, I had no idea that New Jersey even had an election in this off year. I, I I had no clue. But they're talking about the governor's race in New Jersey. And at the time I, I clicked over, which was close to around 11 o'clock central time, Governor Phil Murphy, the incumbent, was behind a Republican that no one had ever heard of named Jack Citarelli. Okay. So I think this was a businessman. I'm not even sure anything about this Citarelli guy. So I'm not going to pretend. And at that moment, it looked like the heavily democratic state of New Jersey was going to vote in a Republican governor. Now about a day went by and you know, all the results were counted and it came down to basically the incumbent, the incumbent Democrat, Phil Murphy. He did end up beating Jack Citarelli, but by a hair, by, by not a very wide margin, especially when you look at the fact that New Jersey was a state that Joe Biden won by 16 points in 2020. But Phil Murphy has been known for maybe being the most extreme governor in the country when it came to COVID policy. So you had Republicans lose a race in New Jersey, but it was, it, it was actually a win for them because it was even close to begin with. And then there was something that a lot of people weren't really paying much attention to, the city of Minneapolis, Minnesota. In 2020, obviously, everybody knows about the killing of George Floyd. Uh, Some people call it murder. I call it a killing of of George Floyd by a police officer there. And since that time, right, they've defunded the police department. And then they decided they were going to do this great idea that they were going to hold a vote to amend their charter, their city charter, in order to replace their police department with something that they were going to call the Department of Public Safety. So as opposed to having police officers in a police presence, they would have like social workers, right? So if there's a, a violent attack of some kind, like a domestic assault of some kind, they're not going to send a police officer. They're going to send somebody with glasses and a clipboard. 
Maybe even a, a porta couch that they can lay people down on and ask them about their feelings and their childhood. I'm being a little bit tongue in cheek there, but it's not that far from the truth in terms of what they were trying to do. And that proposal went down in flaming defeat. That did not pass. 56% of the residents voted against it. You might be thinking that doesn't seem like much. That's only, uh, you know, 56%. You had to have 51% to uh, pass this and they, they didn't have anything close to that. I am a little bit surprised that that many people actually voted to get rid of their police department. But again, at the same time, most of the residents have seen what has happened in their city since the police presence has been removed. So you could count that as another win for kind of conservatism, even though, even though this wasn't kind of a Republican Democrat issue in terms of what was happening in the city of Minneapolis. But in terms of all the things that we saw on Tuesday night, you have to really look at why did those Republican and conservative issues do so well? Okay. And there's a lot of reasons for this. The first and foremost is they messed with our kids. And yes, I am talking about that collectively, even though I myself am not a Virginian. Uh, you know, I don't live in New Jersey or any of these other places that had those elections on Tuesday. They messed with our kids. They messed with the education system, right? And or parents finally got turned on to what has been happening in the education system, maybe for decades. That's one of the positive things about COVID is parents got to actually listen in as their kids were doing Zoom school and being able to hear some of the things that they were being indoctrinated into. Parents started paying attention to the books that were in their schools, which we've talked a lot about. They started paying attention to the homework that was that was coming home. Kids started to ask more questions like, Mommy, I, I'm white and I'm a, that's bad. Why is that bad? This is like six or seven-year-olds that are asking their parents these things, right? But when you mess with people's kids, Mama and Papa Bears are going to fight back, right? Another reason is that, as it turns out, calling parents domestic terrorists don't make them want to vote for you. They don't want to vote for you if you're just going to call them a terrorist. Because, again, the, in the National School Boards Association, they came out, and I told you this, they came out and they apologized for the letter that they sent to the White House. And they did it about a week before this election uh, on Tuesday, but it was too late at that point. When you already call someone a name, you can't just say, oopsies, I didn't mean to do that. But these parents took that on. They're like, okay, I question what you're trying to put in my child's head. And that makes me a domestic terrorist. You're going to put me on a watch list. Okay, watch this. Watch what I'm about to do to your boy, to your candidate, right? And I guess also turns out calling parents and children racist that are in need of rehabilitation don't make the parents want to vote for you either. Because again, if you questioned what the school board was doing, if you were had the temerity to say that critical race theory is something that exists, you are branded as a racist outright. If you're a child in the classroom and you push back against that, you would get in trouble. But But again, parents and children who aren't racist, right? Because nothing about a person's you know, immutable characteristics automatically makes them a racist. Like my level of melanin in my skin doesn't automatically make me a racist, but critical race theorists think so. But that's one of those things that these, these people that were in power at the time, they thought that they could do that, that that would somehow be attractive to potential voters, calling them names, right? But also another reason why these things did so well across the country is suburban women and independents showed up. Okay, suburban win women and independents in 2020 went hard for the Democrats. Okay, they liked the message. They didn't really like Trump. Biden was, you know, just creepy old Joe, but they could deal with it. But they showed up in big time numbers, especially in Virginia. 
Okay. Because again, when you go poking the bear and the bear is mama bear and you're dealing with her kids and their safety, the safety of their, them physically, but also their brains, that's a big deal, a big deal to suburban women. But also another reason that things went well is Biden's a dead person and now everyone can finally see it because for the entirety of his campaign, right? As you know, his, his people were pulling him along and dragging him across the finish line and the media was doing everything they could to run interference for him. People only focused on Donald Trump, which Donald Trump actually likes that, but they only focused on Trump. They didn't really pay attention to Biden. Way more people I think voted against Trump than voted for Biden, right? I don't have anything to back up that statement, but I just think that that's true. But now we've seen, we've had 10 months going on 11 months of evidence to show that Biden is not a real person. He's just a thing. He's a thing that gets up in front of, in front of the, the, the podium every now and then to say words that someone else has written, and then he goes back into his lair. He's not a leader. He's not leading a government that is there for you and trying to do things for you. He's trying to be a generational candidate, a generational president. He wants to have his big feather in his cap. He doesn't think he's going to be running a second term, and now people can finally see that. But the real reason, and th those were all real reasons to begin with, uh, the ones that I've already cited here, but the other reasons, and this is, is maybe one of the main reasons, that the Republicans and conservative thought did so well on Tuesday is because Democrat policies aren't very popular in practice. So let me talk about that just in, in generalized terms. When people will propose something like, hey, wouldn't it be better if you could just get money for doing nothing? And in general, people are like, yeah, that sounds great. But then when you dig down and you do a multivariable analysis and you go, wait a minute, that's going to cause my taxes to go up. So I'm getting money from the government, but my taxes are going up. Oh, and it's going to be lead to fewer jobs and a harder economy and higher inflation. It's going to be harder to, to buy milk and meat and bread all at the same time because I've got a budget I have to live by. And so a lot of people, when you just ask them generic questions about what they want in terms of policy prescriptions, they'll give you the answer that you want. But then if you were to ask them the subsequent questions about how you're going to get to that result, they don't like it very much. Because the reality is, is that critical race theory sucks. Mask mandates suck. Vaccination mandates suck. Inflation sucks. Supply chain issues suck. Violence in our cities sucks. Crimes in our neighborhoods suck. An open southern border sucks. Focusing on climate change and not issues we can actually solve today sucks. And a president that poops his pants in front of the Pope sucks. These things suck. These people suck. Okay? Drinking game. When I say suck, you got to drink. But at the same time, with all of these different issues, you can ask someone a question that sounds good, that sounds beneficial, that sounds loving until you start digging down deeper. Oh, don't you want us to have a mask mandate? Because we don't want you to accidentally get somebody sick. Oh, shouldn't this vaccine, uh, vaccination mandate, shouldn't this just happen? Because again, if you're going to love your neighbor, I mean, you are a Christian, right? If you're going to love your neighbor, doesn't that mean that, that you would want to take care of them by injecting an experimental vaccine into yourself? So Tuesday was not just a repudiation of particular candidates that may or may not have ran a good campaign or not. It was a repudiation on democratic ideology and left-wing ideology, which makes me happy as a conservative, certainly, and as a Christian, because most of what these leftists are proposing doesn't have any backing or grounding in a biblical worldview. 
Now, there's been kind of the predictable reaction and fallout to what happened this week. So obviously, Republicans are doing major victory laps right now on Twitter and on Fox News and on all these different sites. They're really having a good time about it, right? I even had some guys text me on Tuesday. They were clinking glasses together, you know, at at the results of what happened there. So that's obviously to be expected, right? But in the pendulum of what we're seeing right now in politics, people were clinking their glasses together on the blue side last year. Here it is on this side this year. How long till it goes back blue? We'll look at that here in just a second. But the interesting thing that I've seen in terms of the reaction to what happened on Tuesday is Democrats seem to be doubling down or just pretending like it didn't happen. You know, uh, Joe Biden didn't do any media and Jen Psaki didn't do any media the day after this on on Wednesday of this week. No media whatsoever. No reaction to it. Uh, Biden didn't take any uh, any blame for the things that had happened, for the fact that he's so unbelievably unpopular. He even is just very dismissive of the polls like "Ah, polls go up, polls go down. But I'm here to be your president, not to be the, the best guy in the polls, you know, whatever that means. But the Democrats are doubling down on a lot of the idea prescriptions that they put out there. They're not saying, oh, I don't maybe this woke stuff isn't going to work for us. Maybe if we keep going down this incredibly leftist extreme road, things are not going to turn out well for us in the very, very near future. They seem to be you know, talking about all the main talking points about how the only reason their people lost is because of the racists out there. And that's what the media is doing as well. The media is doubling down on this, especially on the racist narrative. And I mean, immediately, as we saw and as it became apparent, even though a lot of the main news stations weren't calling it for a Yunkin yet, when it became apparent that a Republican was going to become the governor of Virginia, immediately MSNBC, CNN, dorks on Twitter were immediately saying, well, I guess that's what happens when white supremacy is part of the race. All the while not realizing that the lieutenant governor of that state was a woman of color checking two intersectional boxes. So apparently the white supremacists just forgot about that. Maybe they were checking the box because it had a name in it with an R next to it, and they forgot that, dang it, it was a woman. And dang it, it was a woman of color, right? Because that's how these people in the media and Democrats think about these voters is that, oh, they're just going to vote for somebody based on the letter next to their name or on their mutable characteristics that they can't control. So the narrative is absolutely bankrupt. You know, going into specific examples is not really, you know, beneficial to the time that we're going to be spending here together today, because, again, it, 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 there's no grounding in reality, because, again, it was two white men that were going against each other. So you're telling me that if I vote for this white man as opposed to that white man, that that makes me a racist. How does that make sense? I don't need to defend that statement. You do. You're the one claiming it. And again, what other options could there be? Is it possible that in the state of Virginia, there was a white supremacist that really had a thing for Glenn Young or for, for Greg Youngkin? I'm, I'm here. I'm going to do this live because I think I've said that guy's uh, first name uh, wrong a couple of times. So we're doing this live. Not going to edit this out later. Glenn Youngkin. Okay. I, if I said Greg Youngkin earlier, guys, uh, you can just, maybe that'll be your drinking game as well. Every time I said the dude's name wrong, you can get on me. So Glenn Youngkin, Glenn Youngkin. But maybe there is somebody out there that thinks Glenn Youngkin is, is the man. And they're a, you know, Big time white supremacists, white supremacists. They love white supremacy. They love the KKK. They love Hitler. They thought he was the greatest guy ever. That's certainly possible. But can we pretend for a second that of the hundreds and of thousands of votes that went for Glenn Youngkin, that that's not because of white supremacy? Again, these people are saying these things as if it's true, no matter what, as if it's just, you know, apparently true. And they're giving no citations they're giving no backing for that statement. The media is absolutely doubling down on this. And, you know, it's not really going to work out for them. I mean, they can do whatever they want in terms of uh, putting out whatever narrative they want. But again, this isn't going to work out for them long term. And again, we're going to look at that essentially right now. 
because what people were talking about almost immediately when it became clear that Glenn Youngkin, not to be confused with Greg Youngkin, when Glenn Youngkin was going to win, you automatically heard people start talking about the red wave, right? So you can't really call, you know, off your elections when there's not that many things that are in question around, not that many seats in question, a red wave. But people are basically looking forward to the midterm elections in 2022. Now, in general, as most people know at this point, in general, most uh, the the party that's in power, especially in the White House, the opposing party tends to do well in the subsequent midterm election. Right. So there was a, a presidential election in 2020 won by a Democrat. You should expect just generically that Republicans would do well in the next midterm coming in 2022. And the same would be true in the opposite. OK, but the red wave right now seems to be a real legitimate possibility, if not incredibly likely at this point. By this time next year, we could be sitting here talking about the fact that the Republicans have flipped the House of Representatives, which seems like a foregone conclusion at this point, but also flips the United States Senate. Okay, there's there's about four races. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, uh, Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, and there's a, another state that I can't really remember right now where these seats are really, really in trouble for the Democrats. They're, they're really in trouble. There's a lot of things that they're going to have to do. And, and again, a lot can happen in the next 12 months. But the House seems like a foregone conclusion that they'll lose that. And then also it looks like they might lose the Senate, which would basically leave Joe Biden in the White House, you know, puttering around, not knowing what to do because he basically can't get any of his policy prescriptions through or the policy prescriptions of the people that are basically pulling the strings, right? So at this point, we really need to start discussing what could potentially keep this red wave from happening. Right. Uh, and so Democrats probably think at this point, maybe the rapture is maybe the only thing. I don't even know if they believe in that, but maybe the rapture is the only thing that could stop that from happening. But let's kind of dig in to some actual reasons. Uh, one thing that I think could actually stop the red wave from happening is if the Democrats don't throw any Hail Marys when it comes to policy. Right. Because for people that are on the fence, like Kirsten Cinema out of Arizona, the senator from Arizona and Joe Manchin in West Virginia, these people don't really have any reason to go along with these extreme policy prescriptions of the Democrats that are currently on the table with the infrastructure bill and, you know, build back better and all these different things that are trillions and trillions of dollars that will lead to even more trillions in the future. Right. But there's no reason for them to go forward with those things. So if the Democrats kind of chill out on some of those Hail Marys that they're tempted to throw, because look at it this way if you think you're going to lose the House, and the Senate next year, you might just try to get while the getting's good, while all the houses, including the White House, is still blue. So if they can avoid doing that, that may prevent a red wave. But also, Democrats just bailing on their positions in general could, could really help them in 2022. So if they back off the rhetoric of critical race theory, if they back off the rhetoric of anyone that disagrees with us as a racist, which somehow has gotten worse since Barack Obama, a black man, has left office, right? It started with him really in 2008. He kind of started stoking those racial fires and it's just continued to go crazy since he's even left office. But if they bail out on some of those positions, if they actually pretend to moderate, because I don't think they can moderate at this point, if they start ignoring kind of the AOC wing of their party, if they start going a different direction, if they start coming more towards the middle and appealing to those suburban mothers and those independents that carry them in the presidential elections and other elections of 2020, that could be something that could prevent this red wave from happening. I, I don't know if it's too big right now for them to stop, but I think that's something that they could do is just basically attempt to moderate. But also a thing that I think, you know, moving from Democrats to talking about the Republicans, one thing that could prevent the red wave is if Republicans refuse to lean into the culture wars. Because something that a lot of people have pointed out is the reason why Youngkin won in Virginia is because he leaned into the culture war. The culture war being education, 
and the culture war being critical race theory. Again, with the Daily Wire and Christopher Rufo and people like that and, and this podcast basically pushing forward those narratives, that was stuff that was fought in the realm of culture, not really in the realm of politics. The, the realm of politics was kind of the setting for this, but it wasn't the reason for this fight, right? Because when Republicans go up there and they talk about, you know, marginal tax rates, I think, you know, Ben Shapiro pointed that out. Like that's, that's good. That's good stuff, but that doesn't affect people on a daily, a daily basis, a day-to-day -day basis. A suburban state at home mom isn't really worried about, you know, these minute things inside of, you know, tax policy or something that could affect, you know, a handful of people, you know, on wall street. You know, that this is not something that's really going to really resonate with her. What is going to resonate with her is if she's afraid that her children might get assaulted in the bathroom at their school because of a new transgender policy or that her her female children who are athletes, that they may not be able to get a scholarship because that school district is going to allow biological boys to compete in those same sports, thus removing a spot for their child. That's stuff that really lands. If they think that their kid's going to come home and say, mommy, is something wrong with you? No, honey, what's wrong with you? Well, it's because I'm white. And the teacher said, because I'm white, that I'm privileged and I'm bad. That stuff lands. Republicans need to lean into those things because culture matters a lot with people. And so I feel like Republicans and conservatives and, and Matt Walsh just pointed this out. Dan Crenshaw's pointed this out. Everybody's pointed this out. Republicans have kind of refused to get into that because it's like, oh, we don't do that. Like we're above the culture war. We're going to let culture be downstream of us. And it's like, it's not working out that way. So Republicans could shoot themselves in the foot if they don't lean into the culture war. Another thing that could kind of maybe keep the red wave from happening is some sort of an, an incredible unforeseen Republican scandal. So I'm just kind of like hedging my bets a little bit here because there could be a crazy scandal about the RNC, the Republican National Convention or National Committee. And there, there could be things that come up that make people just like, oh my gosh, I can't possibly vote for a Republican. I can't even think, I tried to like think creatively of what could possibly happen that, that could cause that to happen. And all I could think of were scenarios that would really only stay in one person and not the entire party. And so I'm not really sure about that. But again, I'm just kind of hedging my bets. But this last thing that I want to talk about that could prevent the wet, the red wave in 2020 and in 2024, uh, since we're going to be talking about it, and this is not going to make too many people happy, but I would say, please stick with me, is if Donald Trump decides he wants to run for president again in 2024. I think that could absolutely stop the red wave in its tracks. Okay. Because here's the reality. So hear me out. I already can hear some of y'all getting angry through, through the airwaves here. If Democrats don't have Trump, people generally won't go along with their policy agendas, right? But again, in 2020, I talked to so many people that just couldn't vote for Trump. They said they couldn't have a vote for Trump on their resume. That, that was their reason to vote for Joe Biden. Like the, the ballot literally could have said Donald Trump and not Donald Trump. Because that's what they were doing. You could have entered any name on the Democratic side and they would have checked that box because Donald Trump was so unbelievably reprehensible to them. And the, he's reprehensible in some of his you know, personal morality, but then all these the media created narratives about him being a racist and about him disrespecting our military and a lot of these things that they didn't have any grounding or backing for. The, the media just, or the people, the general public took those things hook, line, and sinker. And here's the thing is he is, he has his own gravitational force. Okay. He tried to insert himself into the race in Virginia and Yunkin basically kind of waved that direction, but then ran his own, his own race. And it worked for him because the media tried to tie Donald Trump to Yunkin and all these different things, but there wasn't really a tie. 
There wasn't really a tie to that. Youngkin stayed true to the message. He was talking about the economy. He's talking about education. He was talking about those things that mattered to Virginia voters. And when you look at the exit polling, not to get too nerdy here, there were a lot of people in the exit polling that still had incredibly negative thoughts about Donald Trump, but voted for Youngkin. People that voted for Joe Biden last year that voted for Youngkin, a Republican, this year. Donald Trump is still very, very unpopular with the general public, right? And some people think, oh, well, he's been off Twitter for a year now and people are going to be they're going to be used to him. And look at Joe Biden. People are, have buyer's remorse and they, they want to go with Donald Trump over Joe Biden and all that. It's like they want to go with Republicans potentially over another four years of Joe Biden in the White House, but maybe not Donald Trump. As I said from the beginning, I would prefer if Donald Trump would basically say, hey, I had my role as president. I want to do what I can to continue to build and improve the country from here and maybe throw his uh, weight behind uh, Governor DeSantis or a Nikki Haley or, you know, uh, Marco Rubio or somebody. Just pick somebody that you really, really like and that that could potentially be a good thing because you have to keep the MAGA Trump people happy because that is the Republican base. Republicans have to have every part of their party vote in order for them to win a national election because that's how the electoral college breaks down for Republicans. They're not going to win the popular vote, but they have to have everybody vote in order for them to win the electoral college. But a candidate like Donald Trump, which he's made indications that he likely wants to run again in 2024. I think if that happens, that will cause people to have a little bit of pause next year in the midterms to be like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Donald Trump's going to run. And what if he wins in 2024? I don't want to, if he takes over the white house to also give him the house and the Senate. And again, the reason why Virginia flipped in all those main races, governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general, is because Donald Trump was not on the ballot. That's why those races flipped. Donald Trump was not the issue. They focused on the issues. And again, demographically speaking, they won stay at home or they won suburban mothers and they won independence. And those two groups of people painting with a broad brush do not like Donald Trump or his policies. And again, since the the ending of the, the September uh, or the sorry, the January 6th stuff, and it, whether you believe that that was like the worst thing that, that's ever happened in the history of politics and the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of our country, or if it was an inside job or if it was false flag operation, regardless of that, he is branded with that for life. Again, I don't think he called for that violence. I've said that on this show repeatedly. I don't think he called for that outcome by any stretch of the imagination, but that doesn't matter. The narrative matters and the media and the Democrats are in control of that narrative. Again. I voted for Donald Trump in 2020. I talked about that. I did an entire podcast episode last year on the reasons why you should vote for Donald Trump. And I also did a really thorough investigation as to the reasons why you should vote for Joe Biden. So if you missed that, you should check that out. It was posted around uh, the end of October of 2020. But again, guys, I think if you want Republicans to be back in power, you have to be very, very wary of the fact that Donald Trump is kind of lurking. Because again, if he runs again, if if Republicans like DeSantis and Haley and all that, they're going to get mud on them because that's what Donald Trump does. They're not just going to get out of the guy's way and just let him have the Republican ticket, but it's going to become a bloodbath. And you don't want a situation like what happened to Hillary Clinton when they, they pissed off the Bernie Sanders people so bad that most of the Bernie people just sat home, assuming that Hillary Clinton was going to win anyway. And then Trump ended up getting elected. You don't want Donald Trump to suck all of the, the energy out of the room, another Republican to somehow make it and win the Republican ticket and all the MAGA people stay home. Republicans simply cannot afford it. But again, as I started this episode, I talked about Ephesians 5.11, take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Kind of taking it off the Trump thing and kind of getting back to the overall point of what happened here is the 
them exposing the darkness of what was happening in certain pockets of Virginia really led to this outcome. Okay. A lot of parents, a lot of Christians were in the fight in Virginia and it flipped that state to something that's more like a biblical worldview. Again, don't see this as some sort of like American Republican Christian zealot type of a statement, but you can't look at the Democratic ticket. You can't look at the Democratic uh, standards, the things that they believe in, and look to, and think to yourself that this agrees with a biblical worldview. This agrees with the Imago Day, And this goes way beyond the abortion issue, but certainly includes the abortion issue. The Republican Party in the United States has a closer platform than to the Bible than what you would get from a Democratic platform. I think that is unbelievably clear. And that's not a conservative reading of Scripture. That's just a reading of Scripture with my brain turned on. Okay. But now, guys, as I've promised, we're going to do the quick resilience boost. Now, please stick around with me. I'm not going to do this like normal, but at Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Typically, I just leave the links here, but I'm going to read to you a part of this story because it is just crazy. Again, I thought about doing it as its own standalone show, but I'm just going to do it here as a kind of a treat for those of you that stuck, stuck around. So this is from the Blaze Media. Here's the headline. Police say father hunted down and brutally killed man who allegedly sold his daughter into sex slavery. Social media users are calling him a hero. So I'm just going to go ahead and read the first few paragraphs of the story and then we'll flow on a little bit. So here's from the story. Commenters on social media are calling a Washington state father a hero in response to reports that he allegedly rescued his daughter from sex traffickers and later killed the man he believed responsible for selling his daughter into sex slavery. So what happened in a press release issued on Monday, the Spokane police department said that it had discovered the remains of a 19 year old male whom they believed to be the former boyfriend of the 60 year old John Eisenman's daughter stuffed in the trunk of an abandoned vehicle. Describing the incident as a complex case, police reported that Eisenman had set off to avenge his daughter after learning that she had been sold into a Seattle area prostitution ring in October of 2020 by her then boyfriend, the deceased. The 19-year-old male was identified by KXLY-TV as Andrew Sorensen. Eisenman has no prior violent criminal history, has been charged with first-degree murder, and is being held on $1 million bail. According to police, the father rescued his daughter from the ring from their prostitution ring in October of 2020 before later obtaining information indicating that Sorensen was the one who sold her to the traffickers. Armed with that information, sometime in November of 2020, police say Eisenman confronted Sorensen after learning that he would be at a certain location, tying him up and placing him in the trunk of his vehicle. He subsequently hit Sorensen in the head multiple times with a cinder block and stabbed him repeatedly, resulting in his death. Following the fatal assault, Eisenman allegedly drove the vehicle to a remote area in North Spokane County and abandoned the car with the body still inside. Roughly a year later, Sorensen's remains were discovered. So I haven't heard very many people talking about this, but I've been sharing this around a lot. So how I'm going to handle this story, guys, is I'm going to say what I'm supposed to say first, and then I'm going to say what I really want to say. So from supposed to say to want to say. So what I'm supposed to say is this. Is that young man that was killed was worthy of going through the judicial system of justice. He should have been handed over to the authorities and gone through the system that we have set up of law here in the United States as undergirded by the Judeo-Christian ethic that we find in the Bible and gone through the Justice Department and justice system that way. 
And we would assume and we shouldn't have to cross our fingers that justice would have came to him if he had had his fair trial and all the facts came out. That's what should have happened. Okay. Uh, what also may be true in this situation is this young man could have been innocent. Uh, if he was not, hopefully he would have been found guilty. If he was guilty, what he would have done was a destruction of the Imago Day, selling somebody that trusted him, a young lady, into sex slavery, which is pushed on by horny men and, and sinful men and men that look at porn and eventually go on into these masturbation uh, or filled, you know, tirades where they end up using women and all these different things. It, it's, you know, it's that whole entire thing. That's the reality. And also, we should take seriously and heed the call from God that vengeance is his. Vengeance is not for us to take. It was not that father's life to take in that moment because he hunted this man down. He didn't find him in the act of doing this. He wasn't in the process of being assaulted himself. He hunted this man down. And from, from all evidence that we've seen up to this point, and I, I'm open to change my mind in light of new evidence, but all the evidence we've seen up to this point is that this father committed first degree murder on this young man. And that's unfortunate. So that's what I'm supposed to say. Now let's get into the what I want to say part. And the what I want to say part is, is I want this father to get time served. I want him to go through, be, you know, declared guilty, and then be sentenced to time served. I also would like in the city of Spokane for them to have a day dedicated to this father every single year. And point to him as a reminder of if you do something like this in our city, someone's going to get you, and it might just happen to be Liam Neeson's brother, right? I would be hard-pressed to sit here and tell you, in light of all the things I've talked about scripturally and otherwise, that I wouldn't want to do the same exact thing that this father did. If someone tried to do this to sweet baby James, if they tried to do this to my spouse, or if they tried to do this to our other son that we are hoping to welcome in March of next year, that I wouldn't want to do exactly what this father did. All the while knowing what I was doing was sinful and destroying the Imago Dei in somebody else, the image of God in somebody else. But my goodness, this story got me jacked up, like fired up that this father went out and did that. Again, I can't say that what he did was right. I can't say that I co-signed it. But I understand the feeling. I absolutely understand the feeling. And for those of you that don't have children yet, that's one of the things that will change inside of you is your propensity for violence. Even if you're not a violent guy, you're not a fighter, you've never been in a fight, you've never shed another man's blood, any of those types of things. When you have a child and you start to think about what could happen to you and inside of you, if someone were to hurt that child, to do anything to even, you know, harm a hair on their head. It goes back to some of the stuff we were talking about earlier in the podcast with, you know, mothers and fathers being just, you know, very protective of their, their children's sexual purity, but also their purity of what's going on in their brains. The moment you sense that that's something that might happen to your child, you start running through different scenarios in your brain of what you would do, right? I've seen those stories about guys that have actually uh, walked in on their children being sexually assaulted and literally beating these people to death and then getting off uh, with nothing because they were defending their children. And for whatever reason, those stories really, really uh, appeal to me in some way. Not to say that I hope I'm in that situation someday, but man, if I'm ever in that situation, I feel really, really bad for the person that did the bad thing. Okay. Again, 
I don't co-sign what this father did. I'm not telling any of you out there that if your children have been wronged or if your spouse has been wronged in some way, that it's up to you to go out there and go crazy. I think the most beneficial thing to do is do what like Warwick Dunn did. He's a guy that used to be a, an NFL uh, all-star running back and all-pro running back and you know for the for the Buccaneers. His mother was murdered and he went to the prison where his mother's murderer was and he forgave that man. Thinking about Dylan Roof, uh, whenever he went into that black church and killed all those uh, black uh, church members uh, because they were black. And within 24 hours, all the family members of the murdered and slain people went in and forgave this boy and desperately pleaded with him to accept the gospel. That's what I would hope would be going through my head, but I'm not quite certain. So. I've left that link for you guys in the show notes so you can read the rest of the story there. But we're going to go ahead and close out. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. You can also follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook. You can check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And we also want to thank the band August Sprint Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The intro-outro track on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>